I'd like to begin tonight by reading from John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What was finished? What did Jesus mean with those words, it is finished? What was accomplished? You know, we gather on this night to uh, remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. We call this, as Christians, Good Friday. And we can't help but wonder how could uh, the, the, the pain and anguish of the innocent man, Jesus, that led to his death, how could that be called good? What is it that was accomplished? Uh, tonight, what we're gonna do is we're going to spend some time looking at Jesus' final hours, from his last meal to his final breath. We're gonna look through that and, and remind ourselves of that story, and then we're going to return to this question, what exactly was accomplished by this? What did he do? What was finished? And then we're gonna partake of communion together. And then we're gonna sing a song together. And then we're gonna go out. Let's begin with our story. Jesus and his disciples were gathered together in an upper room to celebrate the Passover. The Passover uh, was uh, something that went hundreds and hundreds of years back into Israel's history. It celebrated the time when God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he brought about this deliverance through a, a savior, a man named Moses. And through Moses, God poured out 10 plagues on Egypt and on its Pharaoh because this Pharaoh refused to let God's people go until the 10th and final plague, the plague known as the plague of the first born. The Israelites were told, get a lamb. And at an appointed time, on an appointed day, you are to slaughter that lamb. At sunset, slaughter it and paint its blood over your doorposts. And that night, the angel of the Lord will visit. And if he sees the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts, he will pass over your home. Well, the night came and the angel of the Lord did pass over people's homes, but the homes where the blood was not painted, the firstborn son was killed. And it was that night that Pharaoh said, go. And the Israelites began to leave Egypt. And so every year on that night, Jewish people celebrate the Passover. And this is what Jesus was doing with his disciples in that upper room, celebrating this event. And at one point, he takes the matzah, he takes the unleavened bread, and he breaks it and he passes it out to his disciples. And he says, This is my body given for you. Given for you. 
puzzling words to them. They had no idea what he meant by that. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this is a symbol of my blood, which establishes a new relationship between you and God and it is poured out for you. And again, not clear as to what Jesus intended. They sang a song and they went out. They went to a favorite spot, a garden. A garden not unlike the garden that we see in Genesis. A garden where they they go and Jesus leaves some of his disciples, takes a few of them further into the garden and leaves them and he gives them this instructions. Watch with me, pray with me. And going a little further, he falls down. As the weight of what he's about to experience, he's beginning to see. He's beginning to stagger. Because there is this cup that the word of God has spoken over and over about. It is a cup of God's wrath. It's a cup filled with every sin committed by every individual ever stored up in one cup and it's meant to be handed to Jesus and he is meant to drink it to the dregs. And he looks into this cup and he stumbles and he staggers at the sight of it. And he prays to the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He prays this three times. And he goes he asks his disciples who have fallen asleep, why couldn't you watch with me one hour? He goes back. He prays again. And this time he stands up and says, not my will, but yours be done. About that time, the darkness of that place was lit up with torches. Men with swords and clubs led by one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, And the sign to let these men he was leading know about who to arrest was a kiss. And he kisses Jesus, and he's taken, and the disciples run away. Jesus has led to a secret trial that had been convened, an illegal trial being held in the middle of the night. The religious elders gathered together. They already had their witnesses and they already had their witnesses with their made up stories ready to perjure themselves, ready to condemn Jesus on false information and lies and accusations. They gathered him together. And Jesus, throughout all of this, was silent. He's silent. And what's interesting is, is all of these lies don't end up condemning Jesus because they contradict one another. Finally, the high priest has enough and he looks at Jesus and he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And it's Jesus himself who says the condemning words. I am. I am. These are the two words that God used to reveal himself to his people in the Old Testament. I am that I am. I am the uncreated one. I have always been and I always will be. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am. And this is what they wanted to hear. Not because they believed it, but because they could use it to call him a blasphemer worthy of death. They didn't have the authority to carry out that sentence, so they took him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. 
he pulled Jesus aside after hearing the accusations. The accusations were that Jesus uh, had been inciting the people not to pay their taxes, inciting rebellion, and claiming to be a king. So Pilate puts the question to him, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responds in the affirmative. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says this, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To which Pilate responds, what is the truth? He doesn't see a danger or a threat in Jesus. And so he has him scourged, beaten severely, but then brought back out to the religious leaders, saying he has no reason to condemn this man. This time, they say he calls himself the Son of God. The Son of God is a title that is, is given or worn by the Caesar. And so it is now that Pilate begins to fear. He cannot allow a man to live who would call himself on the same plane or with the same dignity as, as the Caesar. And it's his job to keep peace in Palestine. And it seems that this mob is about ready to go berserk. And so in order to keep peace, he's going to do what they ask him to do. Out of fear, he hands them over to be crucified. But before that, his soldiers take him. They make a crown of thorns from a bush and they push it into his scalp. They dress him in a purple robe and they begin to bit him, bite, beat him and, and hit him with their bare fists, mockingly bow down to him. Jesus has had no sleep He's been beaten severely. He's lost a tremendous amount of blood. And now he has to carry a wooden crossbeam. He's not able to. And so a bystander is forced to take his place. They get to the place of the skull, a hill named Golgotha. And there, the crossbeam is assembled with the vertical beam, and Jesus is stripped naked. His arms splayed out and nails driven into them. Nails driven into his feet. And bloody and naked, he is raised up for the world to see. Deuteronomy 21-22 states that a man hung on a tree is cursed by God. But he was cursed by people first. First, it was the people walking past, the bystanders, jeering at him. Then it, it was those elders, those religious leaders mocking him. And even, even the criminals who had been crucified on his right and his left began to mock him. The Gospels say that about noon, a supernatural darkness came upon, upon the land. It wasn't the sun going behind any clouds. It, it, it wasn't a, a solar eclipse. It was a supernatural darkness that came across the land for, for three hours. And in that time, Jesus barely said anything. 
He didn't return the mocking. He didn't return the cursing. He didn't cry out vengeful things, spiteful, hateful things. Instead, the words that did come out of his mouth were words of mercy and forgiveness and care for people. Around three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can hear the brokenness that there is an intimate relationship that exists between him and his father and it's not there. And then we get to the passage we read. He thirsts. And given sour wine to drink, he says his final words. It is finished. And he breathed his last. They took him down from the cross because of the time of day that it was. His burial was quick, borrowing the tomb of a rich man. What did it accomplish? Let's take a closer look again at John 19. Again, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. To fulfill the scripture, Psalm 69, 21 reads, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. To fulfill scripture, the psalm is a prophecy and Jesus fulfilled it. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. When we look at the Old Testament, we find that there are approximately 450-ish sayings, uh, intimations, prophecies about what this Messiah would be and do. 450 either direct or indirect prophecies about what this Messiah would be. And in Jesus fill, fulfilled 300 of them the first time he was here. The rest to be filled later. He's fulfilling prophecy. See, that tells you that there's a plan involved. That, that somebody said something would happen according to a plan and it happened. Jesus was fulfilling the plan. I want you to consider how John, the gospel writer, introduces us to Jesus. Uh, John chapter one, beginning in verse one through five, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is how John introduces us to Jesus. He says, he is God. He is with God, and he is the creator. 
That's what John is saying about Jesus. So in other words, Jesus was at the beginning. The beginning. When the plan was first formed. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back to the beginning of the plan. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Remember what John said about light? We see here in Genesis, the first thing that happens is that there is a darkness, a void, and, and God speaks, let there be light. And the first thing that's created is light. That's the first thing that's, that's created. And God says, this is good. So creation goes on, and day after day, God creates something. He brings it into existence by the word of his mouth, and he declares it to be good until we get to the sixth day. And on the sixth day, God creates humanity formed out of the dust of the ground, breathed into with his very breath. These are the image bearers of God. Humanity was created to be like mirrors that would reflect accurately what God was like to the rest of creation. They were meant to be co-regents with God, co-creators, co the leaders of this new creation. He put them in charge of it. He wanted them to reign and rule with him. Until we get to Genesis chapter three, and then the enemy comes in. The deceiver slithers in, and he tells our first parents a lie, a lie that God is not good, and you should not reign and rule with him. You should reign and rule apart from him. And they believed the lie. And the problem is, is you can't reign and rule apart from God. You see, to reject him is to walk into the darkness. He's the light. To disobey and rebel against him is to allow his good creation to become filled with corruption. This is sin. This is what sin does. Sin takes what God has made good and it defiles it and it destroys it. And God and sin cannot coexist. A.W. Tozer writes, God is holy and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is moral sickness and must end ultimately in death. He goes on to say, to preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God must deal with the state that humanity now finds itself in, but how without destroying it? And so this is where the plan begins. This is where the plan begins. 
from Genesis to Malachi, we see picture after picture of a coming Messiah, a new and better king, a new and better prophet, a new and better priest. And over and over and over again, this picture is given. And then at the dawn of the New Testament, he is born. The Son of God comes in to the picture. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God himself follows us into the darkness. He's born as we are born. He's dependent as we are dependent. He comes in small and fragile and like a babe, he still needs to be fed and burped and changed and held in his mother's arms. He still needs to grow up and to learn. He takes on what it means to be one of us, only he brings in the light with him. He brings in the light. This is the plan. It's a plan that calls for propitiation. I want you to look at three pieces of scripture with me. First John 2, 1 and 2 says this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 2, 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is a word we very, very seldom use, and I think very, very few Christians actually know what it means, but it's so significant to what it is that Jesus accomplished and finished that day. Propitiation. A loose definition would be this. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God becomes favorably disposed toward us. A substitute that bears God's wrath so God can be favorably disposed toward us. And God was not favorably disposed towards us. We rebelled. We rejected. We brought sin and death into his good creation. God was not favorably disposed towards us. We were, in fact, his enemies. And yet he loved us. The motive for God to come up with this plan, a plan to provide a substitute that he could pour out his wrath on so that he could be favorably disposed toward us. It was love that motivated this plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How is it that God could become favorably disposed towards us, we needed a sacrifice. We needed a substitute. And Jesus willingly came and fulfilled those roles. There's two ways that we needed him to be a substitute for us. 
The first is that we needed him to be obedient for us. We, on our own, were not obedient to God. But Jesus was. Every moment of his life, completely faithful to his Father. Completely, totally his Father's. Faithfulness. You see, he was obedient. And see, in order for him to be a substitute for us, he had to be. He had to be. The second thing that he needed to do was to suffer for us. He needed to suffer in our place. You see, you may have heard me talk about this. I call it the great exchange. We have this resume of sin. We have this, this catalog of, of sin that we, we have carried around with us and, and it is ours and it defines us and it is corrupting us. And, and yet Jesus, on the other hand, he has this resume of righteousness and perfection. And at the cross, he takes that, that catalog and that resume and he gives it to you and I and he takes our resume from us and he gives it to himself. The great exchange happens. He becomes a sinner and we become righteous. And then, as a sinner in our place, he suffers the wrath. He suffers for us. There's four ways that we see Jesus suffering. First is physical. Without a doubt, he suffered physically. The word excruciating was a word that was coined because of the cross. Jesus died on a cross. Physical death, physical pain, excruciating. Now, we as Christians don't believe that Jesus suffered the most physical pain of anybody who's ever lived, and it's not necessary to believe that. Certainly, there are probably other ways that are more painful. And Jesus suffered for a few hours compared to some people who actually endured the cross for several days before finally succumbing. But he suffered intensely physically. But to that was added more suffering. The second way he suffered was he suffered bearing our sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do, do you know what it's like when you're bearing your own guilt and shame after hurting somebody? <clears throat> when you're in that moment after you have deeply wronged and hurt somebody and you're dealing with that guilt and shame on you. Now imagine that moment compounded with every other sin you've ever committed. And then that added to every person, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. The guilt and shame of all that sin born on Jesus. Can you imagine the suffering? I don't think we can. <clears throat> John the Baptist, when he met Jesus, referred to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb was a sin sacrifice. Jesus was God's sin sacrifice. The lamb of God that takes away, not God's sins, the sins of the world. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself... <coughs> 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Third, he suffered abandonment. Habakkuk 1.13 reminds us that the father is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He is holy. Jesus, in becoming our substitute, became sin. And the father could not look at him. And that's why we hear Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by his disciples and there he was abandoned by his own father. Lastly, he suffered bearing the wrath of God. Grudem writes, Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Propitiation means becoming a vessel for the righteous wrath of God to be poured onto. And that was Jesus. I'm going to read uh, a lengthy segment of scripture. It's Isaiah 53, 4 through 12. And as I read, I'd ask you to close your eyes and ponder those last hours. From that last meal to that final breath. The prophecy that I am reading was written hundreds of years before Jesus went through with this. This is what Jesus finished. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he was, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He, <clears throat> the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The wrath of God we deserved to bear was born on him instead. And when the last drop of that wrath was spent, Jesus declared, it is finished. That is the work of redemption. I want to point something out to you that we see in the first work of creation. We go back and look at the end of Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. We read this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want you to notice two things about that. First of all, the repetitive, he had done. The work of creation was accomplished by God. He had done, he had done, he had done. He didn't have any help. It was all his, all the, the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God did it. The second thing I want you to notice is that it was not just good, it was very good. It was complete, it was perfect, it lacked nothing. It was good. Such is the work of God. The work of God is good, and he does it. The work of God is complete, and he does it. You see, when Jesus said, it is finished, the work of God through him was good, and it is complete. You need to know that this is how your salvation was wrought, and he doesn't need your help. He's done it all. It's good, it's complete, and it's finished. I'd ask you to take out your communion elements now as we begin to wrap up. That last night, his last meal, he took that matzah, he broke it, he passed it, he said, this is my body given for you. He's the lamb of God. He's the one who all of our iniquity was laid upon. You see, this is a symbol of propitiation. This is the vessel that absorbs God's wrath so that he could be disposed in a, in a positive way towards you. He said, this is my body and it's given for you. Some people say that the cross is an act of divine child abuse. That the father forced his son into doing this. 
And I would agree with the exception of the fact that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Jesus was a part of every single aspect of this plan and he willingly went through it. He said, this is my body given for you. And if he has been given for you, then say amen and eat this little piece of bread. He took the cup, he blessed it, and he said that it was a symbol of a new covenant. A new covenant. Adam and Eve, their relationship with God was broken, they were fallen. The way that they were meant to image who God was like was broken. And it needed to be repaired and it needed to be fixed and there needed to be a new relationship. And Jesus came to give us that new relationship. But in order for that to happen, the wrath of God against our sin needed to be dealt with. And Jesus became the vessel which absorbed that wrath so that God could once again welcome us in to where he is when Jesus died, a curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world was torn from top to bottom. And once again, you and I can have a face-to-face -face relationship with the God of the universe because he became the propitiation of our sins. And if he did that for you, say amen and drink. What was finished? There's a world out there that needs Jesus to be their propitiation. And if they were to ask you, when Jesus said, it is finished, would you be able to give them an answer? I'm gonna pray. The team's gonna come up. We're going to sing, and then we're going to go out our separate ways, and we're going to wait. Heavenly Father, everything you have ever done is good. From creation to now, everything you have done is perfect. It is complete. It lacks nothing and Lord Jesus your life your death everything that you accomplished perfect and we who are gathered here tonight who have had our sins removed as far as the east is from the west because of what you did can look at this day and say this is good and thank you, God. In your precious name, amen.